0: Good morning. How's everyone doing? Awesome. Hey, glad to hear it. Well, welcome. We're so glad you guys decided to join us this morning here at Grace. Uh, If you've not yet met me, my name is Jeff. Uh, My beautiful wife, Jessica, and I, we are the youth pastors here at Grace. And I get the privilege of serving on the teaching team. Uh, We're going to bring a message about once a month. Uh, Today I'll be up. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 26. Uh, We'll be in 26 and 27. Uh, I think we're going to have a great study. Um, If you are new here, we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, um, and we believe that the Bible is the inspir- inspired Word of God, um, and that there's something for us in every single chapter, uh, and it's all pointing to Jesus, and we're going to see that again today in chapter 26. So before we dive in, I'm just going to pray over us, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into the Word. All right, Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us, God, I just pray um, for you to be here in this moment, Lord, I pray um, for your Holy Spirit to be present, God, that you would open our ears and you would open our hearts to your word, to your truth. God, I pray that it would not be my words or my truth that is heard or understood, Lord, but it would be your word and your truth only, Lord. Uh, I just pray for you to be here, that you would, you would open ears and open hearts, and God, that you would be with me as I bring the message, that it would be your message and your truth, Lord. Uh, we lift you up and we glorify you in all things. Father, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, we're going to be diving in. Um, Before we do, I was reminded this week of something Jesus said um, that we are to do, uh, actually how we are supposed to be like children. Um, Jesus said that we should have the faith of a child. The faith of a child, isn't that beautiful? Uh, And I was reminded of that with my own children, because I think it's interesting because uh, my children are much like their father, um, and so they're big chickens. They are through and through. They're, they're afraid of heights and, and, and rides and all the, all the stuff that try to kill you. I, yeah, I'm raising them right. And, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm putting that out there, too. I say this every just in case. If you ever take me to a theme park, you wasted your money. I, I'm not riding anything, and I don't give in to peer pressure. So I'll eat the food, though. I like the food. It doesn't like me as much, but it's not importance. But my children are, are chickens through and through. They are. Like, put it this way, my 3-year-old, uh, back before he was potty trained, if you put him on a changing table, he would just get stiff and he'd go, I fall, I fall, and just yell that over and over. you think you're beating this child, right? In fact, he would do it if you put him on the floor. And I'm like, son, that's literally not possible. You're as low as you can go. You, this is it. You can't fall. There's no falling from this height. But he's still just stiff. I fall, I fall. Like, that's, that's what I'm dealing with, right? But at the same time, that same three-year-old will stand on the edge of the trampoline and yell, Daddy, and leap. Like, no heads up, no warning, just jump and expect me to catch him. My daughter, exact same way, and, I, and she's getting to the age where I'm like, Honey, you got to warn me before you jump, all right? or we're both going to get hurt right and and but she will she'll just like run and jump and in the air yell daddy like, like you know supposed to catch her but i'm amazed by the faith of a child because those same kids would stand on the edge of a ledge and be terrified but if their father's standing under them they have faith that i'll catch them and i think it's just a beautiful metaphor for for our own relationship with god that, that so many of us try to tackle and take on the hardest things in life or we try to do it our own yet scripture tells us that God is our refuge and God is our fortress that we are safe only when we're in the Father's arms. I don't know how we, we lose that from from the, the age of being a child to then being an adult. Somehow as we age up, we think we have to do everything on our own. Even though Scripture tells us over and over and over again that safety comes in your fortress that is the Father, that is God that we should lean into him for for all things, right? But that's not the point of the message. Imagine for a moment, and again, I would never do this, but imagine, hypothetically, if my child climbed to the edge of of some ledge and they're going to jump off to me, and I I think it would be funny to play a trick on them, and I'm like, hey, come on, come on, come on, and then they jump and I just move. Well, that would be cruel. I would never do that. My children are crybabies. They'd never stop, but also that would hurt them both physically and emotionally. You see, there's a certain sting that comes when someone you love betrays you and hurts you, right? There's a certain sting that comes when when someone you loved and you trusted, when they hurt you and when they betray you. There's a sting that comes with that. And so if I were to do that to my children whom I love, I would never do that. They would not be able to trust me. They wouldn't be able to trust what I said or what I did, and they would just be hurt by it. And I know that there's a lot of people in here right now that can relate to that kind of pain, that kind of hurt, where the people that that you love the most and the people that were supposed to love you, where they've been the ones that hurt you. And as we dive into today's message, I just want you to know that if you've been through that or if you're going through that, you are in good company. We're going to see in just a moment, David is also experiencing this. Those that he loves and those that should love him will betray him. But furthermore, Jesus himself was betrayed by those that he loved. Do you realize when Jesus walked into Jerusalem, when he was led to Calvary, the very people that that hit him and, and spit on him and yelled crucify him and cheered as the nails went through his hand, they were the ones he loved. They were the ones that he came to save. They were the ones that in Romans 5, 8 says, yet while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God knew they would beat him. Jesus knew that they would strike him. Jesus knew that they would kill him, and he still loved them. That's the God that we serve, a God that is just full of grace and mercy. And that same promise is, is for you, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. So even if you're here today, and, and if you never decided to follow Jesus, and you're here because someone made you come or invited you, God loves you wherever you're at. We're going to see today, as we dive in, we're going to go and dive into the text in uh, 26, we're going to see David. Now, before we dive in, let me set that back down for a second. Before we dive in, let's just get a little, little recap, a little history. What's going on at this moment? So we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and we are following uh, the man known as David. He will soon be known as King David. Um, he is also the David who slayed Goliath from you know, the, the, the famous story. So we're dealing with David right now. He has already been anointed as king by Samuel but he has not yet taken the throne. In fact, the man that is currently on the throne, his name is Saul, and he does not want David to take the throne, and so he is chasing him and trying to kill him. At this point, most scholars believe where we're jumping in at 26, David has been on the run for about 10 years. It's been like six chapters for us, but about 10 years for David, so he's getting exhausted. Um, but the very last encounter that we've seen between Saul and David was in chapter 24. Now, let's, re- let's review what happened in their very last encounter. In the last encounter, um, the Ziphites, who we'll talk about in just a moment, told Saul where he could find David, right, told him where to go and and find David. So Saul brings all his men and goes and hunts David down. While they're hunting David down, David and his men, he has about 600 men, uh, it's not clear if all of them are here at the moment, but at least a lot of them are here, Uh, David and his men are hiding in a cave. And while they're hiding in a cave from Saul, Saul comes in to relieve himself, now, it's not clear if this is a, a number one relief or a number two relief. However, David has enough time to sneak up and cut off a sliver of Saul's robe and then sneak back. I'm just saying, I mean, sounds like a, a non-important. But it's, he was there to relieve himself, and David had plenty of time. You allow your imagination to do what it will. Saul leaves the cave, and then as he leaves, David comes out and just waves it. It's like, Oh, Saul, and he shows him that he had the opportunity to kill him. And in this moment, Saul kind of breaks down and he says, David, you are so righteous. And David, you are the next king. And then he has the audacity, my friends, to ask David to to vow an oath that when David takes over as king, that he will spare Saul's family, to which David obliges. David's just a genuine good dude. And then they they part ways. So what we see here at the end of chapter 24 is that Saul and David part ways, that Saul has actually been spared. Saul has been given a second chance. David in the cave, remember, David is a fierce warrior. This is not the kid that beat Goliath. This is the man that has led armies that has killed tens of thousands of Philistines. David is not the little 12-year-old with a slingshot. He is a fierce warrior. Right? He, someone didn't give him food in the last chapter and he was going to go kill every man in this household. All right? This is the David we're talking about right now. David could have killed Saul easily and he let him go. He spared his life. Saul knew this and Saul knew that he had been given a second chance. Now the question is, what should he have done with a second chance? Well, one, he should have lived with more reverence toward God, more respect to David, and he all around should have been more forgiving and more graceful. Right? But we see, in a moment we're going to see, that is not exactly what Saul does. Before we dive into that, I want to ask the question, what should you and I, Christians, followers of Jesus, what should we do with our second chance? Because if you're here and you are a believer, if you've decided to follow Jesus, you have been given a second chance. And if you're here and you've never decided to follow Jesus, but you're in the seat right here at this moment, breath is still filling your lungs, you are now being given a second chance. You see, your first chance was your own ability to be good, your own ability to not sin, your own ability to be justified by your own actions. And friends, let me tell you, we have all failed miserably. It says Romans 3.23, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short. We all have a rebellious nature. We have all sinned and fallen short. So based on our own abilities to save ourselves, we have failed and the scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. So we have failed and we are deserving of death. That was our first attempt. But as Christians and those of us who will come to follow Jesus, we are given a second chance and the second chance is in Jesus. The first chance we failed miserably, the second chance is in him and he will never fail. He will never fail. You see, but if we If we accept this second chance, things should change. Things should change. Right now, the American church is full of Christians who show up to church on Sunday and sprinkle a little bit of Jesus over the top of the rest of their life, but they don't change anything. You see, but what I see in scripture is time and time again is that when people encounter Jesus, it changes everything. It changes everything. When you follow Jesus, it isn't just about like, oh, I'm just gonna live however I want because God wants me to be happy. Does it, where did it say that? I didn't read that. Never once does God talk about your happiness. It talks about joy and that's much different. See, we get this idea that if we show up and we, we do the whole church thing, and if we, 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 we like, Jesus, I'm just gonna sprinkle you over the top of the rest of my life, but I never change anything, I'm good. Listen, friends, right now, hell is filled with people who had emotional experiences an emotional experience will not save you. An emotional experience, being here, feeling the goosebumps, raising your hands, that won't save you. A relationship with Jesus is the only thing that will save you. And whenever I look in scripture, whenever I look in the book of Acts, every time someone experiences salvation, it is immediately followed with two things, repentance and baptism. Repentance and baptism. Now, I'm not here saying that salvation, that repentance or baptism is a requirement for salvation. Because I don't believe that Jesus plus uh, anything works. I believe that in Jesus you are saved. However, I never see someone actually experience salvation without there being life change. And so if you're here and you had an emotional experience and you gave your life to Jesus, but absolutely nothing has changed, well, I'd start repenting. I'd start praying. Because the South is filled with Christians Christians who have a granddad that was a pastor and they think they're saved. And those people will reach the end of their time and Jesus will look upon them and he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. Because it is not about your position on Sunday mornings. It's about your position in Christ. Are you friendlier with the world than you are with Jesus? Which one do you look more like? Because to follow Jesus means we actually follow Jesus. It means we begin to look like him. We open up his word and we learn about him. We act how he act. We talk how he talk. He walk how he walk. We love how he love. When we follow Jesus, we have to change things, right? Don't believe me? Peter and Andrew, they gave up, gave up a miraculous catch. A mirac- their nets were so filled that they began to break and they left them behind to follow Jesus, John, uh, John and his brother, they left their fishing business. Matthew left the wealth of tax collection. Saul left the authority of being a Jewish leader. In fact, over here in Matthew, Peter actually says, I think it's in verse 27. Just kidding, I've lost it. All right. (laughs) Should have highlighted it. But he says that we gave up everything. Peter himself says we gave up everything to follow you. And yet, 21st century Christians give up nothing and think they receive everything. Y'all, do I, 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 I'm saying this for everyone here because I was in a car wreck at, 20, at 27, oh Lord, at 17. And if I had died that day, which I very well could have, I would experience eternity in hell. But at 17, I'd have told you I was a Christian. But I didn't believe in God, I didn't go to church, and my life didn't look anything like Jesus. I was not saved, but I wore a title there are plenty of people here and in the community right now that will wear the title of Christian, and if you ask them, do you know Jesus, they'll be like, oh yeah, I know him, every, all about him, every Easter. That won't save you. The Christian life is a life that looks like Jesus. We've been given a second chance, and we need to do more with it. So I want you to pray about it. This is between you and God. Are you actually saved? Does your life look like Jesus? Have you repented and been baptized? Because those are the next steps to salvation. Pray about it. Talk to God about it. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. We're going to go and jump in. 26 verse 1. This is going to be, uh, we'll, we'll read and we'll talk about it. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, The hill of Hakala which faces Jeshimon. We're not ready for that yet. <laughs> I'm just giving Jacob a hard time. All right, I'll, I'll reread it because I forgot what it said. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which faces Jeshimon? Now, this is the first betrayal. I talked a few minutes ago about how David is going to experience betrayal. The Ziphites. The Ziphites are, are an interesting group. They are from the land of Ziph. I know. Makes sense. <laughs> T- took a Bible scholar to figure that one out. The Ziphites are from the land of Ziph. They are a a, uh, a descendant. They are part of the tribe of Judah, right? We know that David is in fact a, a member of the tribe of Judah, and so they are uh, pretty close to relatives. Maybe distant relatives, but they are our relatives in this moment. There should be an allegiance between them, with them being from the tribe of. Uh, Of uh, Judah. In fact, whenever we see Saul, he is of the tribe of Benjamin, Um, but David is actually from the tribe of Judah, and so there should have been an allegiance here, Uh, but there was not. The Ziphites, again, this is the second time, by the way, that they've betrayed David, Uh, and so David betrayed by someone he loves, but don't worry, him and Saul had a, uh, you know, a a really heart-to-heart, and so they're on good terms now, so I'm sure that Saul having this information is gonna be like, it's good, David, Nah, we're tight, we're good, don't worry about it. Let's just read verse 2 just in case. So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Now, you see Saul still allowed jealousy jealousy to fill him and come over him. But I think it's interesting if we note at this point that even though David and Saul had this heart-to-heart moment, David didn't go back and live with the rest of the Israelites. He continued to keep his distance, even though in that moment he forgave Saul, and I believe that David has truly forgiven Saul. You See, forgiveness is difficult. It is, I know. You see, forgiveness, though. Forgiveness is necessary for the Christian. Jesus himself says, "Forgive, and it will be forgiven. If you do not forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Forgiveness is a requirement for the Christian. We are required to forgive. Why? Because God knows it's for you. It's for you. It's not for the other person. You keeping bitterness and and hatred in your heart, that doesn't affect them. That affects you. And that ruins every aspect of your life. Now notice, though, David forgives Saul. However, he is not reconciled with Saul. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same things. The Holy Spirit will give us wisdom with who we should allow back into our lives. Because we can forgive somebody and still say, it is not wise to let them back into my life. We can, we can forgive, that's what David does here. He knows that Saul has betrayed him time and time and time again. He forgives him because forgiveness is for him. He forgives him, but he, does not be, he is not reconciled with him. And so I know that each of us are facing situations like this in our life. We need to pray about it and ask God, should we be reconciled? That is what you ask God, because forgiveness is not a question. Forgiveness is a necessity. Forgiveness is a requirement. We are to forgive. And no, it's not easy. And it is a daily choice. It's not, I forgive them today, and like tomorrow I'm over it. No, it's you love people with the grace of God. You love people with the same grace that God has loved you with. And because of that grace, you forgive them. And you forgive them. And you forgive them. How many times? Jesus says seven times 70 You keep forgiving, you keep forgiving, you keep forgiving. But that does not mean that you have reconciliation. I believe that we have to be wise. We're going to see that. And David here in this moment, he has no intention of being reconciled with Saul. And so he doesn't go back. And this is wise because, again, as soon as Saul finds out where David is, he decides to hunt him down again. And this time he's not going to make the same mistake he made last time. He brings 3,000 troops with him to hunt down David, David who has 600 men. He brings an entire army to hunt down David. Now, David gets word that Saul is moving through the wilderness, and and Saul is after him, and so David sends out, sorry, I got so distracted, Uh, my timer on the back wall reset. That means I got an extra 30 minutes. We're good, guys. Awesome. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm super easily distracted. I just want y'all to know that. Anyway, David sends out spies to see if Saul is actually there. And he sees that he is there, and he confirms it. And so David decides that he's going to go at night and, and go to Saul and all of his men. And so we're going to jump in here in verse 6. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruah, and jo, uh, who is Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul. Now, something to be noted here, Abishai and Joab are David's nephews. Um, they are Zeruah's children, who is his older sister. Uh, but it, Abishai says, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. And Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him down to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. All right, there's multiple things that's happened here. Now one, you have to understand how this encampment would have happened. The king was with them, so the king would have been asleep at the center. They'd have been surrounding him. His bodyguard directly next to him, that's Abner, is directly next to him. And then they would have been encircled around him in layers to protect him. So you're telling me right now that David and Abishai walk past each one of these guys without waking them up. Listen, I got a three-year-old that won't go to sleep unless uh, Jessica or I are in the room, and that kid is woken up from the crack of my ankle trying to take a step, all right? Are you telling me there wasn't a light sleeper in this bunch? Not one? We'll read later on that actually God put them into a deep sleep. And so in fact, God has put this situation in front of David, and as we'll see in a few moments from what David says, I actually believe this might have been a test of, God, of David's character and a test of David's grace. But what I think is, is, is telling here is this is a, a great um, illustration of also how we experience temptation. Because this situation is nothing like the cave, right? This is Yeah, he has another opportunity to kill Saul. However, at the cave, there was an army of men waiting outside that would have been like, huh, Saul's taking a little while. And they'd come in to check it out. Right, there was also all of David's men at his back that, that were there watching. But this moment, there's no one else there except his na- nephew Abishai, who is eager to kill Saul, by the way. He's like, I can do it. One strike. I got this, David. Sin often raises its head in secrecy. Sin and temptation of, of, often come to the forefront when we think we're alone when we're, we're in the privacy of our own home. Sin will raise itself in secret. And so often we struggle with secret sins. Sins that we don't want anyone else to know about. Sins we don't want our best friend or our spouse to know about. Because if they knew about them, they probably wouldn't be our friend or our spouse. Because sin always raises itself up in secret. And it raises its head in secret and it, it comes to, to devour you. And we see here in this moment, David is faced with the temptation that he could right now at this very moment strike down Saul and no one would know. The madman that's been chasing him for 10 years lay at his feet. I can't think of a more vulnerable situation. And to top it all off, the spear that has been thrown at David like six times now is there. Oh, how beautiful would that be. David has this temptation in front of him. He could pick up the spear. He could let Abishai do it. And in one stroke, he could end all of his problems. You see, sin always poses itself as the answer to your problems, right? Temptation always comes along in the midst of a problem, right? You've broken free of addiction, but then life gets hard. You've you've stepped away from that, or you've stepped away from that person, But man, it would make you feel so much better right now, wouldn't it? You see, here's the secret of the enemy. The enemy doesn't want you for a moment. He wants you for a lifetime. Right? There's a reason that every sin is addictive. Every sin leads to addiction. And every sin poses itself as good and fun and solves the problem. But it will always lead you into destruction. And it will always try to hold you for a lifetime. Why do you think it's so much harder to quit sin than it is to start? Because the enemy wants you for a lifetime. And right here, laying at the feet of David, it seems to be the answer to his problems. And you may be thinking, David's just a good guy, right? He's not going to kill someone. He's not a killer. Well, about that, because in the last chapter, there was a guy that wouldn't send him food, named Nabal. And David's like, I'm going to kill you and every man in your household. They won't be alive in the morning. And David's, like, on his way whenever his wife Abigail comes to save the day. And she comes, and she brings food and and provisions for David and his men, and and David forgives her uh, and and forgives Nabal, and then she goes back to Nabal. Nabal finds out what happened. He has, like, a heart attack and dies, and then she marries David. David's got game. I I don't know exactly. But Abigail's now David's wife. But David was more than willing to do violence when violence was necessary. So why is it that he spares Saul, the madman that has been hunting him for 10 years? Saul would have killed David in a heartbeat. Saul asked for David, because he thought David was sick in his bed, for David and his entire bed to be brought to him so that he could strike him with a spear. Isn't the irony true here? Right? Right? Saul wanted to kill David while David was asleep. David has the opportunity to now kill Saul in his sleep. What does he do? Verse 9. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But we will not strike him. You see, what uh, comes into uh, what comes to the forefront, what, what ends up happening, it's not that David loves Saul. It's that David loves the Lord. That David loves the Lord. So I'm going to skip a whole bunch of slides that I should have hit. Uh, the title was Faith in Action. I'm telling you guys, these slides are my arch nemesis. I love them, and I have full intention of using them, uh, but always forget. David spares, spared Saul's life not because of his love for the king, but because of his love for the Lord. His love for the Lord. You see, you wanna know how David was able over and over again to keep from sin, to keep from giving in to temptation, to keep from taking the easy way out? His love for God exceeded his love for himself. His love for God exceeded his love for his own desires, for his own well-being. He loved God more than he loved peace. He loved God more than he loved himself. He had an a ongoing, intentional love for God. Take this back to like a marriage, right? Imagine, we may be asking you, why don't we have that? But how many things do we choose above God? If we're married, and we consistently choose things above our spouse, we will come to love that thing more than our spouse. If I'm married and I have a beautiful wife, which I do, hallelujah. If we're married... And we consistently, men, if we consistently choose golf over our spouse, there's nothing wrong with golf. But if we consistently choose this thing over our spouse, we'll come to love it more than we do our spouse. If We choose, constantly choose our motorcycle over our spouse, we'll start to love our motorcycle more than our spouse. If we, we constantly choose our hobbies over our spouse, we'll love those things more than we do our spouse. Whenever you put something above something else, you will come to love that thing. You will come to love the, the, uh, the former over the latter. And so the same thing is true with our relationship with God. If we come to love our sin, if we spend more time in our sin, if we spend more time in the world, if we spend more time listening to bad music or playing video games or fishing, if we spend more time in those things than we do with God, shocker, we will come to love that thing more than God. And then it will become so much more difficult to give it up. David loves God more than he loves himself. And you and I are called to love God more than we love ourselves. And God promises us that his ways are better than our ways. His thoughts are better than our thoughts. That if we would lean into him and if we would love him, we would experience joy. I mentioned earlier that that our salvation is not about happiness. It's about joy. We have joy and peace when we follow Jesus. Okay. So David goes and and he has Saul laying there and he loves God more than he loves himself and so he doesn't kill Saul. Instead, he takes the water jug and he takes the spear and he goes up on a hill. And while he's up on the hill, he calls down to Abner who is Saul's bodyguard and he says, aren't you going to answer me, Abner? And Abner replied, who calls to the king? I just, I feel like he's sleepy. I don't know. David said, you're a man, aren't you? I feel like that was a little bit of teasing right there. And who is like you in all of Israel, you big, mighty man? Why didn't you guard your lord, the king? Someone came to destroy your lord, and you didn't do anything. You see, David is taunting Abner here. He's taunting him, saying, you didn't even guard your king. Look, I took the spear and the jug. I could have killed him if I wanted to. And then Saul recognizes the voice of David, and he says, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what's wrong? What wrong am I guilty of? And David goes on to say, if it is God that has sent you after me, then, then then tell me. And I can go make an offering to God. I can make myself right with God. But if it's a man, then let him be destroyed. And then Saul says in 21, I have sinned. He realizes, guys, remember, he realizes that David could have killed him and didn't again. He says, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. It's only sixth time. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. And David says, here's the king's spear. David answered, let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. Remember that line, guys. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and their faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I have valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. I often wonder as I read through uh, the story of David, David does much worse things than Saul did. Do y'all know, I mean, like comparatively, like Saul went and like didn't kill enough people. David went and killed an innocent man and took his wife. And I'm often curious why God shows so much favor and grace to David. And we see it right here. David himself says, The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and their faithfulness. There's a reason David is called a man after God's own heart. It's because he was consistently faithful and righteous. There were times where he fell, and there were times where he made mistakes, and we all will, but God found favor. God God showed favor to him, rather. And then Saul said to David, May you be blessed David, my son, you will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. And so once again, they separated. Now they separate again on on good terms. Um, They are at another time where we see David again, forgives Saul again, forgives again, and again, and again, and again, but he is not reconciled with Saul. He has no intention of going back and living with Saul because he knows that is not wise. However, we're going to see in chapter 27, David starts to experience some anxiety, right? I think this, is, this is, uh, speaks loudly to a lot of people, well, to what a lot of people today are going through. So verse 27, or chapter 27, verse 1. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be, destroy, be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape the land to uh, the, the, I can escape to the land of the Philistines. That's what he said. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him went and uh, left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath, which is where Goliath was from. Uh, David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. And so David, for whatever reason, got super anxious and got super worried. And, 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 and in doing so, he forgot the promises of God. Right? David has been told since he was a young child that he would be the king of Israel. He was anointed by Samuel the prophet as the king of Israel. Jonathan, the son of Saul, said he would be the king of Israel. Abigail in the last chapter, in in chapter 25, said he would be the king of Israel. Saul himself said, you will be the king of Israel. And yet he got so worried by listening to the words around him that he forgot the promises of God. And the same thing happens to us is that the world gets so loud and the, the voice of the enemy speaks so loudly to us that we often forget the words and the promises of our God. You see, it's, it's really easy to believe the lies of Satan when you don't know the promises of God. There's a reason when you read about the armor of God that the only weapon listed is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our only weapon to fight against Satan is the Word of God, and there are so many Christians running around this world unarmed because they don't know the word of God. You don't know how powerful it is to know this word. When you know this word, you can disarm the enemy when he comes and tries to attack you, when he tries to tackle you with his lies, when he starts to tell you how messed up you are and how broken you are and how if God loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. And if God loved you, you the doctor wouldn't have said that. And, and if God loved you, you wouldn't be having these feelings and you wouldn't be leaning back into addiction. You wouldn't be caving to temptation. Listen, if God loved you, You see, you're going to hear these words, and often it sounds like your own voice going off in your head. And it breeds forth anxiety, and it breeds forth loneliness, and it breeds forth anger and jealousy. And before we know it, we are so consumed with the lies of Satan because we don't know the truths of God's word. If you would know the truths of God's word, you would know that he says in his word that the enemy can never snatch you out of his hand you would know that he said he will never leave you. He will never forget about you. That his love is never ending. That he is for you. And and if he is for you, that no one can stand against you. The lies of this world has no power where God lives, where God has ordained, where God has declared there is no power for the enemy. But when we don't know the promises of God's word, we'll believe the lies of Satan. And David here in this moment, he, he struggled. And when he struggled, he ran into sin because sin so often poses itself as the solution. He ran back to the world. He ran, read, ran back to the Philistines and he ran into sin. And he went and he lived there with Achish and Achish gave him a town called Ziklag. Um, and while he was in Ziklag, David went and he he fought, and he fought on behalf of the Israelites. But he told Achish that he was fighting on behalf of the Philistines, but he was actually fighting on behalf of the Israelites. And because of this, Achish says in verse 12, this is the, the last verse of the chapter, Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. He will be my servant for life. Friends, you have an enemy that is trying to convince you of the exact same thing. You have an enemy that is trying to convince you right now, because of all the wrongs you have done, All of your shortcomings, all of your sin, all of your imperfections, all of the times that you've fallen short and you've given in, all the times that you've been angry and anxious and all of those times, because of all of that, you cannot get into the covenant with God. Because of all the wrongs, you're not welcome in church. We've all heard it. We've all heard that friend that's gotten to that point where, you know, if I walk into the church, it'll burn to the ground. What's happened is the enemy has convinced that person that they are too lost for God to want anything to do with them. The enemy has, has convinced us or tries to convince us that because of our mistakes, God no longer loves us. God doesn't want anything to do with us. God could never use someone like you. I know I, I spent 22 years of my life not knowing Jesus, and I would have been that guy. I was like, if I walk into a church, you will burn the ground. I was that, dude? That was weird. What it was is I thought I was a greater sinner than Jesus was a savior. But what I've come to experience, what I've come to see, especially since I opened up this word, is that God uses some of the most broken people to do the most amazing things. If you're here today and you think that my friend will never be saved, or you're thinking God can never use me because of my past, because of my present, because of what I'm about to do. If you're here right now and you think that there's no way that this God wants a relationship with you, because he just really likes the, like the well-dressed, non-tattooed people. like he just There's a standard of what Jesus likes, and I'm just not that. That is the biggest lie of the enemy today, is that you have to look a certain way to be a Christian. Hmm. He is spewing lies across this world. And guess what? The truth is setting people free. That's what we've seen in Asbury. The enemy has been spreading lies and the truth sets us free. And we're seeing revival spread because people are being set free and they're sharing that joy with everyone around them. And the truth is this. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter your mistakes. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you've done. Grace is for you and grace is this. No, you're not good enough. Yes, you are broken. Yes, you are messed up. You will never live up to the perfect God. No, you absolutely will not. But that perfect God so loved you that he sent his one and only son to come down to earth that he would live a perfect, sinless life that you were incapable of living. That he would live that life and he would go to the cross and he would shed his blood so that you could be saved. So when God looked down at you, he no longer seen you and your imperfection. He seen his perfect son, the spotless lamb. God paid for your mistakes. He paid for your rebellion and he can do amazing things. If you don't believe me, just just read the Bible for a minute because I see in the Bible that God uses some wild individuals. If you read the Bible, you'll see God use some messed up people. Look at Moses. We all know a lot of good things about Moses. He He was with God when they parted the Red Sea and some other cool stuff. But did you know Moses murdered a guy? Did you know Moses was a fugitive from Egypt? Did you know Moses couldn't talk plain? What about Rahab? Did you know Rahab was a prostitute? She lived her entire life selling her body to men for money. Gideon was a coward. He was hiding while his country was at war. Esther was a nobody in a time of incredible trials. And Job had literally nothing left. Lost his family, his livestock, his land, and everything. Mary Magdalene was filled with seven demons. Seven demons consumed her. Saul was out killing Christians, hunting them down and ruthlessly killing them. And the thief on the cross had stolen enough from people that he was hanging up and dying for his crimes. And you and I would look at those people and we would say, they don't belong in church. They don't belong to Jesus. Jesus wants people that look like, you know, the saints. With the suits and the ties and the pretty dresses. That's who Jesus came for no, 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 my Bible tells me that God chose the most unlikely people and he changed the world. He showed up and he chose 12 disciples that were most, the most unfit disciples you've ever seen and he changed the world with them. That's who my God is because my God may have taken a murderer and and a fugitive named Moses and he set the Israelites free from Egypt's bondage. He took a prostitute named Rahab who sold her body for money and he used her in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He took Gideon who was a coward and he gave him an army of 300 and he defeated 300,000. My God took Esther who was a nobody. He made her a queen and she saved her people. He took Job who had absolutely nothing, but because of Job's faith, he was given everything, and he was given double portion back to him. Mary Magdalene was set free of her seven demons, and she was the first person to lay eyes on the resurrected Christ. Saul became Paul, and he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And the thief on the cross is with Jesus today in paradise. You see, my God is faithful. My God is good. My God is holy. My God is greater than your every sin. He is greater than your mistake. And he is greater than the enemy that is lying to you at this moment. My God can set you free if you just give him everything. And I'm gonna give you that opportunity right now. I want you to experience freedom. I want you to experience hope. Hope that surpasses everything this world is spewing. Hope that lies only in faith in Jesus. I want us to just bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. The first step to a relationship with Jesus is called salvation. Romans 10, 9 says, if we say with our mouth and we believe in your heart that Christ is Lord, we will be saved. If you believe that Christ is Lord, your life will never look the same. That is the first step. And I want to give you that opportunity right here, right now, I'm going to count to three. I want you to raise your hand. You can do it high. You can do it low. Jesus is going to see it. You can put it right back down, and then we're just going to repeat a prayer together. We're going to lift it to Jesus because he's the one who saves, and he's the one that changes, and he's the one that gives hope. If that is you, and you want to make the decision to to follow Jesus this day, and you may have done it once before, and right now you're going to do it again because right now you need a life change. You need hope. If that's you, on three, raise your hand. One, two, three. Amen, amen, amen. All right, if that's you, you can put your hand down. I just want you to repeat this prayer after me. You can say it either audibly, you can say it silently. The word of God says where two or three are gathered in his name, Jesus is in the midst. God is here and he hears your words. When you pray, you're not speaking them to air, you're speaking them directly to God and he hears you. So repeat this after me. Jesus, today I give you my life. I trust in you. I believe you are the Son of God. And I believe you died for me. Because of your death on the cross, today I am set free. I know you rose again from the dead. You defeated sin and you defeated death. Jesus, today I am yours. I give you everything. Amen. And I truly believe that if you prayed that prayer here today, if you prayed that prayer and you lifted it to Jesus, you believed it in your heart, then today you are saved. The scripture says, today your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and your life will never be the same. The life you now live, you no longer live for yourself, but you live it for Christ. All right, I'm going to pray for us as a body, and then I want us to stand after the prayer, and we're just going to praise the name of Jesus, because he is good. Right, let me pray for you. Father God. We thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us. God, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to move here, God, that we would feel we would feel your peace and your comfort and we'd feel your strength just run through us, Lord. I pray that that we would we would lift our arms and our hearts and worship you right now, God. God that we would just honor you for who you are. God that we would give you the praise and worship that you deserve today, Lord. I pray for each and every person here. You know the hardships and the difficulties they're going through. Holy Spirit, just be with them, Lord, and move with them. Father, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.